Welcome to my podcast, Aging with Grace, designed for anyone who wants to enjoy the journey of a lifetime after age 55. This series is presented in collaboration with Kentucky AARP. In Episode 7, Dr. Nancy Henkin, a senior fellow with Generations United, discusses expanding the role of elders in lives of kids and community. Entrepreneur Michael D. Teague discusses his forthcoming book, Relaunching at Midlife, Creating the Change You Have to Make. Dr. Dale Tarver reflects on just that, rebuilding her life and medical practice in Georgia in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, which devastated New Orleans. Episode 7 concludes with our friend returning, AARP historian emerita Lily Liu, who has become a fierce national advocate on addressing issues related to caregiving. I read a um, good book recently, still reading parts of it. You've got this. It's by um, an author named Margie Worrell. And she has a number of essays in there that I think are very timely for where we are as a society. You know, um, I, and I, got a, I have an admission, and many of us probably do the same thing. You know, how long has it been since we've said no to someone? How long has it been since we've disappointed someone with those uh, looking at us with those puppy eyes and we've said no? You know, let's face it, we are almost programmed to say yes to what others want to hear. Yet, it's impossible for any busy person to live a great life if their fear of not pleasing everyone keeps them from ever disappointing anyone. That's a good line by Margie Worrell, which I really liked. Now, so I'll say it again. It's impossible for any busy man to live a great life, busy man or woman, by the way, to live a great life if their fear of not pleasing everyone keeps them from ever disappointing anyone. You see, of course, there's nothing wrong with saying yes, right? If it aligns with your priorities and your values, say yes. But just be mindful, every time you say yes to anything, you are, by default, saying no to whatever else you may have done with that time, which is your personal time. Saying yes when your heart isn't in it often leads to resentment and frustration. I I think maybe uh, Warren Buffett had it best. He said um, when people ask him about opportunities or, or to join an organization, whatever it is, he said his standard answer is no to everything. Now. Maybe we're not in a position of a Warren Buffett to say no to everything. And I'm sure he, too, finds those obligatory moments in life when we have to say yes. There's the recital um, for the little ones. There's There's a sporting event. There's family gatherings. Those things are important for family value to which we, by obligation, our standard answer has to be yes to be part of a fully functioning family. Or even as part of a society, we all have responsibilities to each other and certain things to which we have to give the obligatory yes. But the question is, there are also opportunities to say no. And I speak this from personal experience. In my 30-year career working, I'm now easing into my retirement years. But during that time, I served on the board of directors for 27 different organizations in our community. Uh, nonprofits and people need board members. And they say, hey, Dale, you'd be a great guy for our board. Can you join us? I'd say, yes, not realizing that I was saying no to something else, which I really may want to do. And so let me share that. I'm not alone in that. I'm sure my our listeners are also in that same predicament, if you want to call it a predicament. It's certainly a challenge, So, which is why I'm sharing this. So next time you're feeling pressure, next time I'm feeling pressure to say yes to something that just isn't lighting us up, something that just isn't turning our crank, how about this? Let's say, um, I'll get back to you tomorrow. If you say, I'll get back to you tomorrow, it will buy you some time to get clear about what matters most and then summon your courage to respond with a very kind and gracious no. This, this is not about rejecting another person. 
It's about saying yes to yourself. That word no can hobble us, can rope us into situations that maybe we don't want to do. But again, you don't want to disappoint because, as I said at the onset, it seems almost like from birth we are programmed to say yes. So again, this is not about rejecting another person. Make sure we're very clear about that. It's about saying yes to yourself. Only by saying no to the good can we ever create space for the great. And that's what I'm encouraging us to do. Find an an equilibrium. Find a place where we can say no. To not, you know, say no and not be offensive. But only by saying no to the good can we create space for the great. And it seems like the older I live, and I'm encouraging you, and I'm not not alone in this, the older we get, it seems like our filters are slipping, you know? And so maybe a good place for the filter to slip might be to use that unwieldy word and say no to allow opportunities and create space for the great. Dr. Nancy Hankin is the founder and former executive director of the Intergenerational Center at Temple University. My next guest is currently serving as a senior fellow at Generations United and is a national consultant in intergenerational practice, policy, and research. She resides with her husband in Philadelphia, PA, and has two granddaughters in Florida. Please welcome Dr. Hankin to this episode of Aging with Grace, presented in collaboration with Kentucky AARP. Dr. Hankin, are you there? I am. Thank you so much. And please call me Nancy Dale. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. You know, this is a uh, very challenging topic when it comes to uh, modern grandparenting. And you've done a lot of research on it. And I thought for today's conversation, we would kind of, for the next 10 minutes, kind of pivot between three points, if you will. We'll talk about the why. We'll talk about the what, and then we'll talk about the benefits, um, because I think that's where we are in terms of what people are wondering. A lot of people have questions about grandparenting. How do I connect? What do I do? And your body of work has been very influential in um, leading people and also suggesting areas for people to get engaged. So when we start with the why, um, as people age, there tends to be a, a tendency towards isolation. That That's something that is part of the aging process that older people, it's important for them to continue to connect because we tend towards isolation as we age. I'm not exactly sure that I agree with that. I think it really varies. Um, you know, people age differently and have different t- kinds of social networks available to them. And I think more and more people are staying in the communities where they've lived and they want to continue some of the friendships they have. And they also struggle with what is my relationship with my children, my adult children, any grandchildren, younger members of my family? And what is my relationship with other members of the broader community, whether they be young or old? So I think there, what there is, is a a search for meaning and purpose and connection as we grow older and people fulfill that in different ways. There's also a need to be generative. That's like, how do you transmit all that you've learned, all the knowledge and skills and experiences mm-hmm. you've um, you know, gained throughout your many years on earth? How do you share that with younger generations? Again, whether it's with your own grandchildren or with other members of the community. Mm -hmm. So I think that right now, um, this is particularly important because we are physically isolated. So during COVID, I think this social isolation is incredibly, having an incredibly powerful impact, not only on older people, Mm -hmm. but on families, on parents, and on children. Um, We don't have the natural interactions that we usually have when we find ourselves, you know, in our in our houses or our apartments uh-huh. yes. um, and often with the same people for many, many, many hours. And I think we don't have opportunities to touch each other. We don't have opportunities to hug each other. Mm-hmm. We don't have opportunities to necessarily share the confidences that we normally do. 
So we are the elders of the tribe. You know, what's our role? How can we help our grandchildren get mm-hmm. through this mm-hmm. very challenging period? How do we, how can we be support to our children yeah. who are dealing maybe with families? And how can we support younger members of the community who may be struggling academically or socioemotionally mm-hmm. or with food insecurity? So yeah. kind of, I think we're at the point what, What's our role as elders? Right yeah, now? what's our role as elders? And I was, uh, not only is that important, our role as elders, but something you mentioned a minute ago, uh, we must not ever undervalue uh, a hug, which right. which communicates so much. And I almost submit that that's part of validating, that's part of being human, being able to hug another individual and now having that not available. What's the impact from, from your position? What have you seen and, and how does that impact the family? Well, I think there's tremendous depression everywhere. I mean, I think uh, I talk to my grandchildren on the phone and they say, when are we going to be able to hug you, Yaya? Uh Um, And, you know, when are we going to be able to see you? And it breaks my heart, you know, not not to be able to see them. And I just think about all these people in nursing homes, in care facilities, in retirement communities who are confined to their rooms. And not only can they not maybe see their grandchildren or young people, but it's when COVID, when there were real high positivity rates, people couldn't leave their room they, and they couldn't get visitors, you know, mm-hmm. seeing your children and grandchildren through a window. So I think this is having a, a real impact on um, depression, on feelings of powerlessness um, and on real feelings of loneliness. I mean, there's yes. a lot of feelings of loneliness and this has become a public health epidemic. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's been growing over the past decade, but right now it's a it's a tremendous problem. And we have to start thinking about how do we begin to heal? Yeah. How do we begin to create opportunities for people to come together again mm-hmm. and, you know, connect in meaningful yeah. ways? Well, what you're saying about how do we come back together again, that would suggest we uh, have to become more intentional about creating relationships with different age groups. There has to be an intentionality there. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And that's my favorite word, intentionality, because yeah. I think people sometimes assume, oh, yes, multi-generational family, we have great relationships with everybody every age, or we live in a, a community where there are all different kinds of people and we interact with them in meaningful ways. When if you really look at it, often there isn't an intentionality about going deeper with mm-hmm. relationships. So, you know, when we think about all the Many older people have grandchildren or at least have young people in their families. But how many of us really examine those relationships and say, do my grandchildren really know who I am? Who do I want to be to them? Do I really know them? Do what am I doing to get to know them better? How am I supporting them? Um, How am I supporting their parents? And so, you know, these are things that right now, as we have time, because we're all home so often, you know, how can we start examining these issues and saying, whether it's within my family Mm -hmm. or opportunities within my community, how do I begin thinking going deeper? Well, to your point then, yeah, how do we deepen those relationships? And you don't want it to seem fake, right? It it has to be natural. And to your point, there's Poppy over there. He's doing whatever Poppy does. There's Nana. She's doing, I think you said your kids call you Yaya. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, so, but without it feeling fake, which will turn kids off, how do you make that natural, Nancy? Well, I think part of it is relationships matter and how you develop relationships matter. And when you look at research around relationship building, some of it's based on, you know, self-disclosure. Do you share who you are with your children and and grandchildren, get them to share who they are? And then can you engage in joint activities together? Um, And and how do you show respect to what they're thinking and, um, and not impose your values and judgments on them? So it is complicated because there may be conflicting cultural values. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes grandchildren, grandparents are different religions, different races, different ethnicities. Mm -hmm. Um, And those things can both create opportunities for conflict, but they can also create opportunities for real interesting discussions and for tolerance and for understanding across all these potential boundaries. Let me ask you this, because it's it's almost like the the last thing, the worst thing you want to do as a parent is ask your child, what did you do at school today? Mm -hmm. And what does the child say? Nothing. 
you know? Right. And so when you talk about becoming intentional with the little ones, with the grandkids, what are some of the leading questions or what's a, what have you seen or read that you think would be um, good opening statements, good opening gambits, if you will, for building a relationship uh, with your grandkids? Well, part of it, my son always reminds me of this, it's not necessarily what you did, but are you happy? You know, what are you doing that makes you happy? Hmm. What are the things that upset you? Um, can you share something you learned today? Um, you know, are there questions you have of me that you've always wondered about? I mean, there are a whole lot of activities you could engage in. There's a, um, a series of beautiful questions on a um, an organization in Milwaukee called Time Slips. And there are questions that you can just interview each other on, like what makes you happy? Tell me something about yourself I don't know. Um, what's your favorite room in the house and why? What do you look forward to when you wake up? These are just general open-ended questions ra- rather than how is school today? Good. I like that. And what, what was the reference point on that? Did you say time slips? Time slips. It's an organization. In, but there, there are many, many organizations that have um, questions. That of course. You also, you can, with your grandchildren, you can come up with a list of mm-hmm. questions to ask each other. I think the whole idea of interviewing each other. Yeah. So and grandparents want their kids to know about them. So mm-hmm. we tell stories. So storytelling is really important, but it needs to be both ways. Please listen to my full 30-minute interview with Dr. Nancy Hankin discussing ideas for elders interested in deepening relationships with family and community on my website, awg 55 before we meet our next guest discussing relaunching at midlife, there's a uh, ancient Chinese proverb which states the following, a journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. No matter what we desire to accomplish, be it small or how large, we have to overcome inertia. Maybe there's some fear. There's other concerns, real or imagined, that we have to face before we can move from where we are physically or psychologically to where we want to be physically or psychologically. It could be something as simple as a, um, an annoying habit or something more complicated, like literally being upended by a force of nature as our last guest, Dr. Dale Tarver, shared of being forced to relocate from New Orleans to Augusta, Georgia in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. Or, or, or let's try this one. Maybe you're laid off from work or being forced to learn a new skill at age 40, 50, or 60 years old. And then the other option, which is probably more realistic with boomers, is this. Early retirement perhaps becomes the inevitable question of what now? In this episode of Aging with Grace, we have a segment called New Beginnings. And my next guest, Michael D. Teague, has some ideas about how we relaunch, how we cope with new beginnings. Michael is an entrepreneur. He's the author of Relaunching at Midlife, Creating the Change You Have to Make. The next few minutes, we're going to discuss how to relaunch at midlife, how to get your hands around new beginnings and a whole raft of related topics. With that said, Michael, welcome to Aging with Grace. Dale, it's a pleasure to be here. Appreciate you having me. Absolutely, my brother. How's uh, New Jersey today? New Jersey, it's about uh, between 37 and 43 degrees. It was colder when I woke up this morning and went to my, my, my lake place. I go to a lake for my quiet time and then worked out. Now it's a little bit warmer. Pretty windy, though. And we're not the windy city. Oh. <laughs> No, you're not. You're, you're the garden state. We're the garden state. <laughs> well, I tell you what, we're going to uh, kind of uh, see how life is in New Jersey and also across the country. Yes. Because, um, Michael, you have some interesting topics that you've had to address. And um, one of the things I want to talk to you about without getting into your personal story is something that a lot of baby boomers are grappling with, which is how do you relaunch? Let's start first at midlife. So, Dale, in order to relaunch in my book, and and the book is in the editing stages, for the time that we have, I'm just going to review the the seven points that are part of the book. So 
first step, and it's akin to the grieving process, right? So it's about accepting the reality. And I, I was on mm-hmm. an interview a couple of days ago, and the uh, interviewer said, Mike, you know, at, at midlife, how many of us want to change? You know what I said, Dale? I said, there are times in our lives where change is inevitable and unavoidable. It's like death mm. and taxes, right? We have to, mm-hmm. we have yeah. to complete both. <laughs> and so <Yes. laughs> you know, not wanting to or being reluctant to or apathetic to is, is really, it's not the real issue. The real issue is, and, and I remember the examples that you provided earlier, someone is downsized. You, you got to relaunch. Mm-hmm. You see, another person who may be listening, who's been diagnosed with a chronic illness, you have to relaunch. Another person whose parents can no longer live in the home, and I work in healthcare, and they have to be put into an assisted living facility, they're relaunching is unavoidable. So the first step is accepting the reality of the need to relaunch. Everything in my mind, and I'm a baby boomer myself, everything emerges from that first place, that psycho-emotional spiritual place that I've got to accept the reality that at 56, I've got to relaunch. Mm-hmm. But you see, here's the kicker, though. If you're if you're looking at relaunching at 56, um, you know that's that's midlife. I that mean, is. That's when people start settling down and maybe going for the proverbial gold watch. They're not gold anymore. I don't know what you get now, other than goodbye and thank you. But you know that's a tough thing to relaunch yourself Agreed. when you're thinking, where do I go? What do I do? So we'll start with accepting the reality, and so. You know, how does one accept the reality? I think that's that that's the question that surrounds this principle. I think it's about self-honesty as opposed to self-denial. Mm. I think it's self-honesty versus self-denial. Exactly. Flesh de- that out. Then de- de- flesh it out. Admitting. I have a I have a saying that is tangential to what I'm what I'm talking about. It's not directly applicable per se, but here it is. If you mess up, fess up and fix it up. See, the fess up part is, is self-honesty. And I think that at midlife, if we have not yet developed the ability to be honest with ourselves, then there's a deeper problem. Mm-hmm. You see? So you know what I like about you, Mike. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. Go ahead. Go ahead, Dale. No, I was going to say what I like about what you're saying is you are a living example of this. You had eight for my listeners. You had 18 years in corporate America. Still in, yes. And then, but there were ups and downs. And so, how did you mess up, fess up, and fix up in terms of changes you had to make. I like that. Dan, what I like about you, you have you have this way of asking very pointed yet very relevant questions. So for your listeners and to all the listeners, I really appreciate this opportunity. I have relaunched 20 times in my adult life. So whether it was withdrawing from Dartmouth College undergrad and then coming back and graduating on time, whether it was burning out in divinity school and having to take a year off from from faith-based work. Whether it was, let's see, I want to be correct in my time frame, 2018, being terminated from a healthcare position in which I gave 100% in sales, but the business model was terrible. And of course, I became the convenient scapegoat. Those are just, what, three or four examples of 20 times in my life that I had to relaunch. So Mm -hmm. let's take the most recent. I was terminated. Did I deserve to be? Different story, right? But I was. That's the reality. So I had to say, okay, I'm a one-income household. What am I going to do? And so I had to accept the reality. I I had to process the pain, number two. I had to examine the terrain. What was the employment-related terrain that I had to now observe, accept, and navigate in order to move forward? So how did I mess up, mm-hmm. fess up, and fix it up? I don't know that I messed up, but obviously my employers thought I did, <laughs> right? I had to admit, hey, here yeah. I am, right? I've got to be reemployed, and I'm, I'm an entrepreneur. Right. So my business ventures were still coming together. 
I had to make an income. I had to be reemployed, be able to get that biweekly direct deposit in my checking account, health benefits, et cetera. That's really concrete. And I, and I had to do it at 56 years of age. Well, I was about 54 at the time. Mm. See what I'm saying? So there's certain yeah. things, Dale, that, that I didn't read about to be able to talk about. As it says, I'm not new to this. I'm true to this. I've lived this. So I can talk to your listeners and say, I've gone through it. This not theory, mm-hmm. it's practice. Mm-hmm. I like that. It's not theory, it's practice. Yes, and for sir. our listeners, we have um, Michael D. Teague. He's the author of Relaunching at Midlife, Creating the Change You Have to Make. And you can get more information on his website, which is Michael D. Teague, T-E-A-G-U-E dot com. So, Michael, as we continue, um, you know, the, the reality is the world is changing. Yes. And that change has impacted us. But change is difficult, yet change is necessary as we look to the future. And you postulate you postulate a relaunch can position us for success now in our future. What do you mean by that? So I'll, I'll say something that I hope is motivational, and then I'll unpack it. A setback is a setup for a comeback. So what we have to do, once we've examined the terrain, here's, here's, the, here's the practical piece. We've got to create a new plan. I had to, at the, the four different points that I described earlier, the most recent of which was a termination, I had to create a new plan. Applying for unemployment. Thankfully, I had been interviewing for another position, but it took five months for them to finally make a a hiring decision. I still had to survive for six weeks. Mm -hmm. If that fell through, then I had to look at LinkedIn. I had to look at Indeed. I had to say, okay, what can I do to be reemployed? Update my resume. See these concrete, very practical things? Yes, very practical. At at midlife, we want to slow down. I acknowledge that, but we do, the paradigm has shifted. The baby boomer, 1960s, 1970s, maybe 80s, I go to college, maybe graduate school, I assume some student loan debt, I get a good job, and I, I work that one job for 40 years, and then I retire with a 401k plan. That's dead. Mm-hmm. Everybody that's dead. The paradigm has shifted. Give me, let me give you an example. Mm-hmm. The digital economy, I believe it's $571 billion that the digital economy will generate in 2021. When I was born and when I was in my formative years, and all of us who are baby boomers, how many of us imagined that we could run a viable, profitable five, six, seven, eight-figure business from a, a laptop, an internet connection, and a cell phone. Yeah. Right? So the paradigm yes. has shifted. I'm not a seven-figure business owner yet. I'm getting there. And I literally run my business from a laptop, an internet connection, and a cell phone. And the, to, to be a bit facetious and lighthearted in this moment, I have an iPhone 6, which is not nearly the best, the, the latest device. And, <laughs> and my team of freelancers literally exist throughout the world. Am I bragging? No. I'm trying to force us to understand that when we want to be sedentary, relaxed, inertia has set in, we want to slow down and retire, now's the time we're going to have to speed up if we're going to make it in this day. Please listen for part two of my interview discussing Michael's soon-to-publish book, Relaunching at Midlife, Creating the Change You Have to Make, in episode eight of Aging with Grace. My next guest on Aging with Grace is Dr. Dale Tarver, a pediatrician who was forced to relocate from New Orleans in 2005. You remember 2005 in New Orleans, it was uh, Hurricane Katrina. It was a large Category 5 Atlantic hurricane that caused over 1,800 deaths and $125 billion in damage. 
practically devastating the city of New Orleans and the surrounding areas. It was at the time the costliest tropical cyclone on record and is now tied with 2017 Hurricane Harvey. With this devastation, all of us have different storms, things that cause us to start over, things that cause us to reevaluate. And in this case, it was a storm of nature, something that our next guest could not anticipate, but yet she had to react to it. She had to create a relaunch plan, if you will, which Michael Teague, my other guest, will be talking about in more detail. But on this segment of Aging with Grace, we're going to be talking about new beginnings, things that cause you to accept the reality of moving on or simply staying where you are. Either way, not sure of the future or what's coming next. So without further delay, I'd like to introduce my next guest, Dr. Dale Tarver. She's a pediatrician in Georgia, Augusta, Georgia. And we're going to have a discussion about new beginnings and starting over, beginning with Dr. Dale Tarver. Dr. Tarver, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Welcome to Aging with Grace. I appreciate your time and uh, coming on our program today to talk about new beginnings. Um, and my understanding is, you again, you had a wicked new beginning in 2005. Give us a background of being in New Orleans right before uh, Hurricane Katrina. You had a, you had a pediatric practice. Uh, before Hurricane Katrina, I did have a pediatric practice. I worked for the Children's Hospital in New Orleans. And they had several uh, satellite uh, clinics around the um, in the underserved areas of New Orleans. And um, so I was in in my pediatric practice. um, And um, uh, in the uh, in the ninth ward Mm -hmm. of uh, New Orleans. Mm -hmm. And um, I was working every day. I was uh, having patients in the hospital. I had um, uh, newborns coming into the office. So it was a a regular pediatric practice. Mm -hmm. It was going right along, moving right along. So you'd established a life in New Orleans. And um, how long, I think you were in New Orleans from, uh, you moved there in what, 1991? um, 1991, yes. So you had a I'm sorry. Go ahead, go ahead. Doc. Uh, right after I graduated from from med school, I I, um, I did my residency at Tulane okay. um, in their pediatrics program. So it's safe to say that you had formed friends, relationships, and basically you've been there a little while. And I understand you have a daughter, and she was born in New Orleans. I have two daughters, and they were both born in um, New Orleans, mm-hmm. and. Um, Yes, I had established friends and um, my uh, church and my sorority and, um, you know, all of my connections that that you make for your everyday life, my physicians, my dentists, all of that. Mm -hmm. So everything was there. Everything was in place until August 2005 when uh, nature decided to take a wallop to uh, New Orleans. That had to be a very horrendous and challenging hurricane, to say the least, leaving uh, 1,800 people dead. Very devastating. It was devastating. And when we came to Augusta, as we fled the hurricane, it was devastating seeing, um, I saw some of my patients on uh, CNN listed as missing. So it was devastating. And it another uh, devastating part of um, the news coverage from uh, New Orleans about Hurricane Katrina was seeing the uh, thousands of people standing outside the Superdome and the Civic Center, and they had no place to go. Mm-hmm. And they, I mean, it was just a picture of devastation and poverty. Mm-hmm. And obviously no one could prepare for that. Um, and so now you have to figure out how do I adjust Right. I mean, because everybody, I think at the time was uh, headed, uh, headed uh, west to uh, Houston. Is that right? That's correct. That's correct. Mostly uh, everyone was going to Houston and and the city government was um, going to provide buses for people for for those who didn't have their own transportation to travel to Houston. Mm-hmm. Um, so. When um, when we realized, when I realized everyone was traveling to Houston, I said, 
you know, I'd rather travel east because mm-hmm. east was Georgia and east was home. Mm-hmm. So we picked up and um, we came east. Mm-hmm. So you drove, I think it's what, about 600 miles uh, east from Houston to Augusta? About 600 you know, miles? Six, uh, you 600. know what? I don't know the mileage. It's, okay. usually, about, <laughs> it's usually about uh, nine hours yeah, from, okay. uh, we're, from we're, New Orleans to yeah, Augusta. Yeah. This is not uh, Mike Lawrence with 60 minutes. You know, is it is 600 <laughs> miles, 611 miles? Come on now. We're not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll go. I, I really don't know. I don't know. I know when I get in the car. I know. Uh, <laughs> I know I'm in for about nine hours of travel. Okay, that's fair. Nine hours. So, so y- y- you had to make some choices. You know, um, do you rebuild or do you? I mean, you did not make that haphazardly that we're leaving New Orleans because you had family there. You had connections. You had your practice there. So, right. what goes into the to making that decision that I got to go someplace else? I think what mostly went into the decision to go someplace else was the knowledge that our that our friends were leaving there, and there are a lot of people packing up and leaving. And um, I think that at the time we didn't want to be the only ones stuck in New Orleans. We didn't know how much the devastation was going to be, mm-hmm. and. Um, no, we didn't really want to leave our, um, I didn't really want to leave my office and what we had going on in New Orleans. But um, I think that no one anticipated the flooding that was going to happen um, after the hurricane that um, that ruined uh, several areas of the city. Mm-hmm. So we... So it wasn't an easy decision to make, but it was a necessary decision to make. And I don't think that um, I anticipated that it was going to be long term. Mm -hmm. So very traumatic. And so as part of the trauma, I imagine psychologically as well, um, you have to process the pain of letting go and embrace new beginnings. That's not easy. It isn't easy to let go. Um, especially I felt like I really had, um, matured and really became a woman in New Orleans because I had built a family and built a practice basically on my own. So it, it wasn't easy. Um, it wasn't easy letting go. Um, Mm -hmm. but you, you do have to look forward and you, you have to keep going. So you have to have, a, I gather then we can agree, you have to have a fluid plan. You know, you didn't know, you certainly didn't know all the pieces of going uh, to Augusta, but you had a general idea of what that was going to be like before you headed out. Would that be a fair assessment? A fluid plan? I don't think so. I don't <laughs> think we had a fluid plan at all. I think that uh, we knew where we were going and we assumed how long it was gonna, how long it was gonna be, and then. Um, but no, it wasn't a fluid plan. Okay. Okay. Um, not well thought out. Not fluid. Not any of that. Just mm-hmm. going. Mm-hmm. For listeners of my podcast, Aging with Grace, we're discussing uh, new beginnings with Dr. Dale Tarver who had to relocate from New Orleans in the aftermath of a powerful hurricane Katrina Katrina in August of uh, 2005, which devastated her hometown where she lived, also her practice and where she worked. And again, this podcast is made possible in collaboration with Kentucky AARP. Um, So once you got to Augusta, what was the first thing? What was your first step in terms of reestablishing home there? Well, the first step was really, well, when we first got here, we stayed with my mother. Mm-hmm. And I think the first step was really was trying to get my girl in school. Mm-hmm. That was the first step. So basically, the, that, that would be the basics. Would be shelter, uh, making sure your, your, well, your two daughters at the time are going to school. Two daughters. Getting into school. 
and then starting to uh, what about and so you have family there because that was that's your hometown I gather right yes that's my hometown so then so then you had to figure out okay how do I launch my practice here right I mean you just can't walk in and start a, a build up a practice to the extent you did in uh, New Orleans it takes time you can't um, you certainly can't just walk in purchase a building and you know hang out your shingles you can't do that. The first thing you have to do is um, get a license. You have to be, I had to be licensed in Georgia. I was licensed in Louisiana and I had to be licensed in in Georgia. Um, I had a friend who was going on maternity leave and she was, um, she needed a, a substitute for her for while she was out. And so we hurriedly, got my license in order. And um, so I was able, that was my starting point was really just filling in for her while she was on maternity leave. Mm -hmm. And once I, once she was back from maternity leave, because I had communicated with others in her call group, they asked me to come and work for them. It's locum tenens. They wanted a day off. But they didn't want the office to close. So I worked in their offices for probably the first six months that we were here. Mm -hmm. And then um, in January, in 2006, I did find my own place to to work and start my own practice. Mm -hmm. So about a year later, um, about a year later. About a year later, it, it picked up. Mm -hmm. It picked up, but um, I was doing sort of bare bones practicing. I was still filling in for the other physicians um, on for about three days out of the week just for income. Maybe just looking back on the experience, what do you wish you had done uh, and you didn't do, maybe? You know, I don't know that there's anything that um, I wish I had done that I didn't do. I think... With a new beginning, there's no rest period. You really have to continue to work. And I always say that after after Hurricane Katrina, you know, I have a friend who was who her husband went to work. She didn't go back to work, and she's a physician for about a year. And I said I just didn't have that luxury. I I had I. When it happened, I had to get my feet on the ground and get running. I, a new beginning to me meant working harder. Mm. And mm. after I had started and about three years into my new beginning, I felt I, had, I could breathe a little bit more. But for me, for me, a new beginning meant working and working to make sure that it, this new beginning worked out for me. That's excellent. And that's really good advice. Dr. Tarver, Dr. Dale Tarver, thank you so much for your time. Truly appreciate it. And thanks for sharing with our listeners how through a uh, physical, through a uh, natural devastation, you had to start over. And you've obviously done well. And we applaud you for that. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. In this episode of Aging with Grace, we've already heard about New Beginnings featuring Dr. Dale Tarver in New Orleans, who literally her life was upended by uh, force of nature, Hurricane Katrina, forcing her to move and relocate from New Orleans to Augusta, Georgia. And then we heard from an author, writer, and uh, entrepreneur, Michael Teague, with an upcoming book on embracing change, especially at mid-age, and how life, when it uh, goes in one way, and you have expectations at age 50, 60, 70, you have to figure out how to keep going in a different direction. We also heard from Dr. Nancy Hankin discussing modern-day grandparenting. Nancy, you'll recall, currently serves as a senior fellow at Generations United and is also a national consultant in intergenerational practice, policy, and research. And so today, I thought I would wrap up this series, uh, this episode, by inviting Lily Liu to back to our program. Lily has been here before, and those of us who, who uh, remember her being here, she's absolutely delightful. 
Uh, Lily Liu is AARP Historian Emerita. She has been the family caregiver for her mother for the past decade, and Lily has been speaking around the country about her journey as a one-and-a-half-generation immigrant family caregiver, and she has become a fierce advocate on addressing issues related to caregiving. Lily joins us from Washington, D.C. Lily, are you there? <laughs> Boy, am I, Dale. Good to be back with you. Thank you so much for the kind invitation. Absolutely. I thought it'd be good to have you back today. And uh, especially, you know, we last time you were here, and I certainly hope you're ready to do, do this again, uh, you were able to share pearls of wisdom from uh, Dr. Ethel Percy Andrus, who was the founder of AARP. Uh, and uh, was a longtime educator and founded uh, AARP in 1958. She was delightful, and you've been kind enough to share her pearls of wisdom. It is my absolute honor, Dale, because I spent the last 15 years of my career at the association researching Dr. Andrus's life. And, you know, it's so funny because I've said it's not just history, but her story that I've been researching. And Dr. Andrus really Mm. wowed me with her vision. She was able to see ahead. And so for me, not only did my research help preserve, you know, archival materials and the history of the association, I learned a lot of wisdoms for my own aging. Oh, that's so good. Very practical applications, if you will. Yes, and which is why having me join the other guests on this segment is so key. I hadn't realized how, like you had said, one of your guests had to deal with natural climate change. Another person had to deal with a life change. I think we're all in the midst of change, especially now. Mm, Especially now, very challenging time, to say the least. And it seems like... um, Dr. Andrus was very forward-looking. Would you agree with that? Even though she lived um, in the 19th century, she was extremely forward-looking and has uh, thought about the future, it appears. Yes. Can you imagine a woman born in 1881 who would live to her 80s? She passed away in 1967. Everything that she wrote back then is just as pertinent today. You know, it's amazing that uh, Dr. Uh, Andrus as a uh, as a citizen, as a resident, if you will, of the 19th century, was so forward-looking, Lily, in terms of uh, kind of seeing the future, if you will. Oh, yes, Dale. It's so interesting. I spent the past 15 years, as I said, doing research about her life. And what was so interesting is we are very fortunate. She was also the editor of the AARP magazine. So we have a collection of the essays that she would have written as the editor. She passed away in 1967. So a woman born in 1881 who passed away in 1967 Mm. would be able to have pearls of wisdom that we can apply to today. May I actually read you one of the passages that I love? Oh, please do, Lily. Please share it with, uh, with with us, our listeners. Yes, it really resonates with what just happened with your other guests. I will begin. I quote, We oldsters are the ones who have bridged the great gap between the Surrey with the fringe on top and the jet streamliner. From the early telephone with the ring of its bell to the telestar with its clear contact with Europe, the one constant we older ones have experienced has been change. The young folks of today, on the other hand, have been born and reared in a world of the atom, of a world of unrest, uncertainty, of the threat of world war, and even fear of annihilation. We who are retired have much to share with these young people. How else will they know the kaleidoscope of change? End quote. Yes, a woman born in 1881. That is so beautiful. (laughs) Yes, and so I felt that, you know... That is just such beautiful prose. Yes, right. I mean, she was a writer of that era, you know, and some of the words are from that era. But the context of what she wrote, I love, because number one, we are indeed always filled with change. But number two, she wanted to bridge the relationships between generations. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And that's so important, you know, in terms of reaching out between generations, establishing those relationships, which are beneficial to both. They're beneficial to uh, to grandparents and to elders, elders, and it's also beneficial to uh, young people coming up. You know, well, you who, know, who need pathfinders. Exactly. I was just going to say, how else will they learn wisdom unless they keep burning their hand, right? Unless someone older tells right. them, you know, don't touch the oven. So I think for me, what I've learned by working with older volunteers, because that is still a hallmark of the association, is the ability to volunteer with AARP, I have met so many wonderful volunteers who have taught me and they've all said, make younger friends. Isn't that wonderful? That's great. And I guess that keeps you young at heart, Lily. Yes. And between (laughs) the generations, there's much passage of pearls of wisdom. The younger may be teaching the older technology and the older one may be sharing life experience. That's so good. And I think uh, as we go to our conclusion and ending this delightful segment with you, um, I've often admired Western or Eastern societies which value, venerate, respect the the elderly among them versus Western society, which seems to be like, uh, you get a certain age, you got to get out of the way because I'm coming through. And I think we do that to our own peril. Well, you know, the, the Chinese, I can speak specifically about the Chinese tradition. There is a virtue in the Confucian philosophy that is called filial piety, F-I-L-I-A-L. And in the word in Mandarin Chinese is xiao. And so it's been around for millennia. And it's basically to honor, respect, venerate, and take care of your elders, your parents, anyone older. So I think that type of historical tradition does do something to help a society understand the value of the older members of that society. That's so good, Lily. Again, thank you so much for your time. And I certainly hope you'll come back to a uh, future edition of Aging with Grace. Oh, it would be a wonderful honor. And thank you for everything you're doing in this space. It is a very needed podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lily. For our listeners, you've been listening to Lily Liu. She is a AARP historian emerita and has been a family caregiver of her mother for the past decade. So she speaks from a wellspring of, uh, of uh, practical experience. And I hope you've enjoyed listening to her today as much as I have. Have a good day, Lily. Thank you, Dale. Bye-bye for now. 